Good morning. We are in the second to the last week of our series entitled He Is. This week and next week is all that remains. Uh, you could see if we're the second to the last week, we'll be talking about the claim that Jesus makes where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, before we talk about Jesus' claim to be the way, the truth, and the life, I'd like to share a story that I've shared before, but it's incredibly important and relevant for today. On September 18th, 2010, 35-year-old Mitchell Heisman walked onto a university campus and killed himself. Now, the details to his suicide are haunting. The location, Harvard University Memorial Chapel. Memorial Chapel was originally constructed to give remembrance to Harvard graduates who had died in the Great War, World War I, the supposed war to end all wars. Additionally, the location, I mean the time, was 11 a.m. on Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year on the Jewish calendar. It is the day where God is said to look at the sum total of his sins and forgive his people. So on holy sacred ground in holy sacred time, Holy sacred life is lost. Now, Mitchell Heisman left behind a suicide note. That's not uncommon, but what is uncommon is the length of his suicide note. It was roughly 1,900 pages long. In it, there are an amalgamation of ramblings, emotions, but every so often, profound philosophical insight. He says... Every word, every thought, and every emotion come back to one core problem. Life is meaningless. It's the idea that there's no purpose, no meaning. Now, he, in the note, traces when his dive into despair began. And he pinpoints it precisely to a moment. When did he first start thinking life was meaningless? He said, the death of my father marked the beginning or perhaps the acceleration of a kind of moral collapse. So in losing one father, Mitchell Heisman loses two. He loses an earthly father, but because of that, he begins to lose any idea or concept of a transcendent good God or father above. And because he lost the categories... To have a transcendent good God above, he begins diving into this despair and ultimately ends at a point of meaninglessness. He says, if there is no extant God, extant's like existing, if there is no extant God and no extant gods, no good and no evil, no right, no wrong, no meaning, no purpose, if there are no values that are inherently valuable, no justice that is ultimately justifiable, then destruction is equal to creation, life is equal to death, and death is equal to life. In losing one father, he loses two. And in losing the transcendent good God above... He loses all the categories that give our life's meaning. Now, this is where his story intersects with our story. And by our story, I don't just mean you as an individual or me as an individual. I'm telling, I'm speaking of it as our culture as a whole. His story is paralleling our story as a culture as a whole. See, Americans have become a miserable people. 
we are more unhappy, more discontent, more discouraged, more depressed, and more suicidal than ever at any other point in American history. Suicide, for instance, has gone up in nearly every state for two decades straight. In other words, there is not a place you can run to hide from the despair. It has gone up in nearly every state for two decades straight. Half of Americans say they are lonely. You realize we are the most connected generation that has ever existed, but somehow we are more lonely than ever before. One in five young women cut themselves or practice some form of self-harm. And we are literally overeating, undereating, smoking, snorting, watching, whatever we can to help us deal with the misery that's taken root in our culture. It's like whatever coping mechanism we can try to find to pretend that our lives actually have meaning or purpose. I mean, it's statistically verifiable. We're becoming more unhappy, more discontent, more discouraged, more depressed, more suicidal. So our culture is on this parallel track. We have lost similar categories that Mitchell Heisman has, and we're diving into this form of despair, which is incredibly interesting because simultaneously as we go down, 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 our standard of living goes up, 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 up. Our ancient ancestors could never have dreamt up a world that was as good as the world we live in. They could never, never have done this. I mean, think about this. Whatever foods you may want, there's a grocery store and dozens of restaurants to supply that right after. You know, and we get, we get options like, I don't really feel like that. I'm over that. We say things like we're starving when we haven't ate and the sermon goes for two hours. I'm starving. I'm not starving. You know, we got, I've joked around about this before, but we have magical technology where if ever we feel the slightest degree of discomfort because it's too warm, we could press a button and cool it down. If you get too cold, you can heat a room up, heat your car up. We, as a people, relieve ourselves and go to the bathroom in cleaner drinking water than millions of people have access to. But somehow, bizarrely, as the standard of living has gone up, 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 we as a people have gone down, 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 down. We're more discontent, more unhappy, more depressed, and more suicidal than ever before. See, our culture has what I'll call a way, truth, life problem. We've lost a way, we've lost truth, and we've lost life. Let me explain what I mean by each of those words. First, what I mean by we've lost the way. So when you're on a path or a road, there's an intended end goal. There's a a destination that you want to get to. You're driving down the road and you want to get to point A. You don't just drive around for no reason. There's a purpose. And that purpose guides you to the intended end goal. We as a people have lost that. We don't know what's the end goal. We don't know what's the purpose. We don't know why we're driving down the road. Viktor Frankl, a psychologist, but more importantly, a survivor of the Holocaust says this. For too long, we have been dreaming a dream from which we are now waking up. The The dream that if we just improve the socioeconomic situation of people, everything will be okay. People will become happy. 
The truth is that as the struggle for survival has subsided, the question has emerged, survival for what? Ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. Humanity spent thousands of years to get technology to the point where it is today, where we don't have to worry about X, Y, Z, and we finally arrived, we don't know what we're surviving for. Evermore today, people have a means to live, but no meaning to live for. Michael Heisman loses his father, and in doing so, he lost the heavenly father above, and in doing so, he lost a meaning and a purpose for life. And we've arrived at a culture where we're in the exact same boat. Now, we can say that we have meaning and purpose. Like, you could go after church and log into your new Disney Plus account and watch all kinds of these wonderful cartoons that tell you how special you are, how unique you are, how wonderful you are, how your life has purpose and there's an adventure ahead. And, you know, if you just work hard, you too can marry Princess Jasmine. Could rise up from the gutters. It's like, okay, your Disney movies are saying that, but the foundational operating system of our culture says otherwise. See, culture has adopted a secularism divorced of God, and a secularism divorced of God cannot provide meaning and purpose to fuel your life. Because a secularism divorced from God says this, you are a product of random chance. You have no purpose. There is no God. There's no good. There's no evil. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no reward. There's no virtue. You are a little speck of dust on a big giant speck of dust called earth that floats randomly without purpose through a great big thing called the universe. But it's all products of random chance without any end goal or purpose. And so things that you think matter and are real, they don't actually exist without a God to ground them. So things like love. Love is not real. Love is something your body does. It creates a chemical and hormonal reaction to make you attracted to someone in order that you might propagate the species. But it's not like real. It's not grounded in anything transcendent. It's a construct. Things like morals, morality, ethics, those aren't real. We just, as a society, invent morals and ethics in order to maintain some type of stability in a people. But like virtue and dignity, those are just words we invent. They're social constructs that give meaning and subjective purpose to behaviors that we think will help the tribe survive. But make no mistake about it. It's all random chance and it's all socially constructed. So we have a way problem. We don't know where we're going. We don't know why we're going. Now here's the thing. If you don't have something worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for. If this is all just chance, you have nothing worth dying for. Therefore, you have nothing worth living for. We also, in addition to the massive lack of purpose and way and meaning, we have a truth problem. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary declared the word post-truth the international word of the year. 2016, post-truth become the international word of the year. Why? Because society has become so pluralistic that no one can ever claim any type of objective truth for themselves. In addition to the loss of objective truth, we also no longer trust anybody or anything that we used to trust. 
So decades ago, there would at least be some type of trust for the institutions in this country. You'd sort of trust, you didn't like them, but you sort of trusted the government and you kind of trusted the media and a lot of people actually trusted the church. Nobody trusts anything anymore. You don't trust the church, you don't trust government, you don't trust politics, you don't trust media. And so nobody trusts anything as a source for truth. And if no one trusts anybody for a source of truth, what do you listen to? This is the mantra of our culture. Just follow and listen to your heart, feelings, emotions, or self. So the individual and how they feel in the moment determines objective reality. Now you just might think that, okay, that's a small thing. No, tr- the in- listen to me. The individual in how they feel in the moment determines objective reality. You are watching that ethic play out in our culture right now. So we don't lack, we lack meaning, we lack purpose, we don't have truth in any objective sense, and we've lost life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and it appears as if he's doing a good job. Because like we just addressed, we're miserable people. Americans are extremely unhappy. We're sad. We're depressed and every measurable sickness that deals with emotion or mental health is increasing in this country at this moment. We don't have way, we don't have truth, we don't have life. On the night Jesus was betrayed and the day before he died, the day he was murdered, he speaks these words. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now that's a bizarre thing to do. The night you're betrayed, the day before you die, you give some encouraging words to your followers. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's bizarre because you would think, and you would hope of yourself, right? Like, if you're going to go through some crazy trial or tribulation, I want my friends and family gathered around me to give me encouragement. I'm the one that's going to suffer. Encourage me. But Jesus is the one doing the encouraging. And he knows everything that's about to transpire. Jesus knows the beating the flogging, the nails, the humiliation, the cross. He knows what he's about to experience, the agony and scorn of the cross, but he still says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's as if he knows that whatever darkness he is about to go through, whatever agony he's about to go through, whatever death he is about to go through, he believes he will go in it and through it and come out on the other side. And because of that, the one who should be encouraged is encouraging his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. The context of this verse is in John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. Now, verse two is a very popular verse. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If you grew up Christian or grew up reading the King James Bible or a couple other translations, you know this verse to read, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, mansions... And room here is a translation of the Greek word monet. 
And Manchin does a horrible disservice to what Jesus is actually trying to communicate. Because when you translate Monet as Manchin, you are making the promise of Jesus deal in a currency of materialism and luxury. Meaning, Jesus' promise to you is dealt with this materialistic gain of a big, giant old house. And you know, some of you might have imagined it before. I'm gonna get a mansion in heaven. Big, giant, with a big yard, not like California Bay Area yards, like big, giant, some giant high fences for privacy, because I don't want any of my heavenly neighbors knowing what's going on in my, you know, place. But Jesus' promise is not one of materialistic gain. Jesus' promise is one of intimacy and closeness. You've got to kind of dive into the first century Jewish world to understand this. But marriages in Jesus' day did not look and function like the way marriages do in our culture. In Jesus' day, if there was a young man who liked a girl and he thought that she liked him, then he would go to the father to arrange the marriage. Now, modern people immediately react to an arranged marriage for, for a number of reasons. And many forms of arranged marriages are, are bad and unhealthy, but you, you gotta take a step back and look what the people in the first century were trying to accomplish. First, this was the idea that as a young man, if I thought I had a chance with a girl, because in Jewish first century world, the woman also had to approve of the marriage, not just the father, then I would go and save up as much money as I can and present it to the father in order to purchase the bride. Now, you're thinking purchase as a 21st century material capitalist as if now this is my possession. The first century world, think of a shepherd saying, I own these sheep. The understanding would be I have responsibility to care and nurture and guard these sheep. They aren't just my to own and to do whatever I want. And so a young man would save up as much money as he could and maybe get help from dad and some relatives and he would go to the father and say, I want to marry your daughter. And if the daughter approved, then the son would prove that he is going to care for daughter by showing, look, I'm a hard worker. Look how much I've earned. You know I come from a poor family, but I've brought you two cows, five goats, some coupons, some Subway gift cards, and I'm a hard, your daughter will be safe with me. Watch Fiddler on the Roof. There's, there's arranged marriages in that movie, and the thing that the father cares about, because we don't think like this, He wants to know if that son can work hard enough to provide enough money to help his daughter survive the harsh winters. That's the idea. Will this man work hard enough to provide enough for my daughter? If the father approved, then the daughter would also have a chance and she would have to approve or she could decline it. Now, this is where it gets important. If the daughter and the father accepted, then the daughter would now be declared to be bought with a price. She's bought with the price and she's in the betrothal period. The husband-to-be would go back to his father's house. And as he went back to his father's house, during that betrothal period, he wouldn't be spending time with his bride-to-be. He would be adding structure and room to the father's house so that when he and the wife got married, they would go back to the father's house. So the houses looked a little different. There's tons of excavations in Israel right now where you could see stuff like this. People lived in what you'd call insulae. 
And insulae weren't just houses like ours, but they were multiple rooms that were connected and they often shared a common courtyard so that families could sort of live together. And even if all the rooms weren't connected, you'd have dwelling places right next to each other so that the family as a whole is kind of forming this mini community together. You'd share common courtyard, you'd share resources. The groom-to-be, the husband-to-be, leaves his betrothed wife during the engagement period and adds on to the father's house so that when he's married, the new family could be a part of the father's home. This is a promise of intimacy, a promise of closeness. This is wedding talk and marriage talk. Listen to the words of Jesus now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. This is language of intimacy and closeness. Jesus is saying the only way into the Father's house, which means the only way into the Father's family, is through him because he is going to build this. Interesting, there are other parables that will make more sense in the Bible when you understand this because there's a lot about parables about a bride needing to, to stay awake and be on guard for the groom can come at any time. Because after the, the groom was done building the house, there would be a surprise when he'd return to her and take her to the father's house. Another interesting thing. Uh, Jesus, by trade and craft, was a carpenter. Okay. So the word that's used in the New Testament for carpenter is tectone. And it simply means builder or laborer. The reason why we get the idea that he was a carpenter is because in the modern, specifically the Western world, when we build houses, we build them with wood, lumber. Um, if you've ever been to Israel, did you notice all the big giant forests that are everywhere? That's not the way it works. The homes and the insulae were primarily built with stone, vol volcanic stone, limestone, etc. Jesus might have been a carpenter, but the primary resource in that area was not wood, it was stone. So Jesus was a tectone, and a tectone is a laborer, a builder, someone who could be anything from a handyman to the one who's building the house or building the rooms. So follow this. Jesus spent his earthly life fixing and building homes. Now, on the night of his betrayal, he says he's going to build a different type of home, a spiritual home, and he will come back for his bride to take her into the new house that's in the father's insulae, the father's place. This is a promise of closeness and intimacy, not materialism. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do not know him. You do know him and have seen him. So you get this. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to get to the father, it's through me. You have to be married to me. I am the husband and you are the bride. There's only one way to get into that family, which is extraordinary claims. 
Like you have to understand what Jesus is doing with all these I am statements that we've been going over. He's revealing stuff about his character and his nature, but again and again and again, he's also saying, I'm not just a normal dude. I'm not just like a prophet in the Old Testament. I am God. When you see me, you see the Father. To get to the Father, you have to go through me. Way, truth, life, no other way. This is why when people look at the life of Jesus, they say, never has a man spoke like this before. No one claimed the things that Jesus claimed. No one did the things that Jesus did. No one said the things that Jesus said. In modern culture, we want to neuter Jesus. We want to make him just you know, a wise prophet, a wise teacher, a good moral teacher that can guide you in some principles. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is far more radical than those categories. This is why when you look at other world religions, none of their founders or leaders never dared had the audacity to claim about themselves what Jesus claimed about himself. Oh, no, no one would say that stuff. No one's going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. When you see me, you see God. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be the Yahweh of the burning bush. Muhammad would never dare claim to be Allah. But Jesus says, I am true and living God. Before Abraham was, I am. The Buddha simply claimed to be a teacher in search of truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Confucius didn't even say he was a prophet. Jesus and the first followers of him said, Jesus is the true living word of God. Muhammad said he has no hope outside the mercy of Allah. Jesus Christ says, if you, don't believe, if you don't believe in me, you have no hope. You will die in your sins. No one else even comes close. Sometimes people will make claims like that, but you, you know they're crazy right away. You know what I mean? It's like so one of you came after church. You know how you said no one claimed things like Jesus? Well, I'm God too. Like, you're crazy. You're a nutcase. Well, I need to pray with the pastor. I'm not a pastor. Go talk to someone else. I don't want to talk to you. You're crazy. You know what I mean? It's like, you're crazy if you think you're God. And by the way, what did people think about Jesus at first? He's crazy. He's a madman. Even his family thought he lost it. But see, it's not just the claims of Jesus. It's the life he lived. And when you observe the sum total of the life lived by Jesus, you realize, no, no, this guy wasn't crazy. This isn't a madman. Far from it. In fact, Jesus lived in such a way that he not only demonstrated that he wasn't crazy, the life he lived demonstrated that the only people that were crazy and madmen were all of us. The life Jesus lived demonstrates to the world that humanity is living like the crazy people. We're the madmen. We're the people who have lost it. And he was the only true human to truly embody the will of God. He's the only sane one. We're the, we're the nutcases. And so he spoke like no one spoke before. He claimed things about himself that others would not claim. And then his life lived. No one touched the lepers like Jesus. No one touched the unclean like Jesus did. No one would go and disciple the women and the outcast like Jesus did. No one treated the poor with dignity like Jesus did. No one taught us any of those things. No one forgave and forgave and forgave and gave and gave like Jesus did. No one. He is the centerpiece of human history. 
whether you're a Christian, an atheist, Muslim, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is hands down the most influential, significant human being to ever walk this earth. And he gave us all of this, and what did he get in return for it? We kill him. We kill him. But the story has to go like that, right? Because he has to go away for a while. I go to prepare a place. And when you least expect it, the husband returns. The text goes on. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's, I mean, this is the ultimate now. When you see Jesus, you see God. Do you want to know what God would do if he came to earth? Look at the life of Jesus. Do you want to know what God would say if he came to earth? Look at the life of Jesus. When you see him, you see the Father. Jesus is saying, if you want a way, you follow me. If you want truth, you follow me. If you want life, you follow me. I am the only way to God. This is why Jesus, by far, no matter what culture says, is the most controversial, offensive figure ever. What other human being says, follow me or else? Most controversial, offensive figure in history. So what happens when you abandon Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? You get what we're in. Right now, you have the ability to watch in real time what it looks like when a culture abandons Christianity. You're watching in real time what takes place. See, Christianity for 2,000 years continues to grow and grow and grow, and it will always grow and grow and grow. However, there are points where in specific regions or geographical locations, there's like a rise and a decline. There is an ebb and flow. So right now, there's places in the world where Christianity is exploding. Like, everyone's becoming Christians. And then there's places like mm, the Bay Area where you see a decline. And you are watching in real time what happens to a culture when they forsake God. You go crazy. You lose meaning and purpose. You lose ethics. You lose morality. You, you lose love. Just, I mean, watch it. We are living in an insane world right now. Have you, have you noticed, like, in the last six months, if you read a news article, you have to almost double-check to see if this is satire or not? Is this real? Did this Because ha- there's no way this could be real. Oh, wait, it's real. Some of you guys, uh, there's a satirical Christian website called the Babylon Bee. Raise your hand if you've ever read anything from Babylon Bee. Okay, Babylon Bee's pretty funny. All right. They put out satirical articles, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. That can never happen. Six months later, it's happening in reality. It's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And so culture, we've lost our way, our, our ethics, our morality. It's crazy. By the way, uh, I say this often, but it's important when a culture chooses evil, 
when they forsake God, it is not the people who forsake God that feel the immediate pain. It's not the people who forsake God who feel the worst of the pain. When a culture forsakes God, the people who get it the worst are always the children, are always the kids. And you look around what's happening to family structures, to marriages, to romance in this country, and you are seeing kids pay the price for it. And they will grow up and raise kids, and they will grow up and raise kids. You're watching in real time what it looks like to have it come undone. What's even crazier is as people reject Christianity, they use the very tools, measurements, and rulers to reject Christianity that Christianity gave them. So people will say, I don't like this about Christianity. I don't like this about Christianity. This Christianity is wrong here because of this, this, and this. But they unknowingly are using the tools, measurements, and rulers that they inherited from Christianity in order to judge Christianity false. Let me, t- let me give you an example of what I mean by that. You might hear someone say, oh, Christianity is so evil and corrupt. The church is so bad. It's all about the patriarchy. It's historically, it's oppressed women, and it, I don't like the way it's treated women. Wait a second. Where did you get the idea that women should be treated equally with men? Like, everyone knows that. What do you mean everyone knows that? Most cultures in most places in most times did not believe that. There was a hierarchy. There's God, men, women, children. And then depending upon the culture, slave or slave child. Where did you get the idea that men and women are equal before God? Where did that notion come from? You got it from thousands of years of distilled Judeo-Christian values that you inherited. And you just think it's an assumption that you just got it right. Or Christianity isn't tolerant. I'm all about tolerance and Christianity, I I don't don't like how it's so intolerant. Where did you get the notion that tolerance is a good thing? Where did you get the idea that tolerance is a virtue? Because most people, in most times, in most places, thought the bad guys should be killed. The default human nature is that the bad guys should be killed. Christianity taught you not just that tolerance was a good thing. Christianity taught you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should bless and pray for and love your enemies. So don't tell me, like, Christianity is intolerant. You wouldn't even think tolerance is a virtue, without thousands of years of distilled Christian values. What about, the church is full of hypocrites. I mean the church is full of hypocrites. What's wrong with hypocrisy? Where did you get the idea that hypocrisy is bad? If it serves you well and advances you in the world, why not use a little hypocrisy? Or the church doesn't care. I don't like, churches are greedy. They're all about themselves. They don't care about poor people. Where did you get the notion that the poor are worthy recipients of mercy and compassion? Many cultures have class systems. Many people believe in reincarnation. That's punishment for past lives. Many people thought the poor were being punished by God. Where did you get the idea that the poor are worthy recipients of compassion and mercy? You got it from Jesus. You got it from thousands of years of distilled Judeo-Christian values. And you saw it best modeled in Jesus. And right now, you have a world-forsaking Christianity and the mechanism by which they're doing so is a mechanism they've inherited from Christianity. The legendary Dostoevsky says this, 
Even those who have renounced Christianity and attack it in their inmost being still follow the Christian ideal. For hitherto, neither their subtlety nor their ardor of their hearts has been able to create a higher ideal of man and of virtue than the ideal given by Christ of old. You see this. Even to judge Christianity evil or wrong, you have to have a standard. And the standard that the modern world adopts is the standard that was inherited by Christianity. Because the highest ideal anyone could ever come up with is God himself becoming a human being to die on a cross for his enemies. That's the highest standard. You can't get any higher than that. That is the best. And that is why Christianity and Jesus Christ is the most influential person to ever walk the face of the earth. The second most influential person that some may argue comes close to Jesus is Paul the Apostle. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No other way. There's no other way to God. There's no other path. There's no other road. There's no other truth. There's no other life. So where do we go from here? I want to do two things. I want to address individuals and this as a whole. Wrap it up. What say you? I don't pretend everyone in this room is a Christian. Um, I always joke around about this, so don't, don't feel bad. But there's some of you here because you're dragged here, like you're dragged here by mom or dad or a spouse, or there's some of you here that like you like, you like a girl, you're trying to impress her, so you're pretending to do the Christian thing. You're like, you're quoting like fortune cookies, thinking they're Bible verses, and you're, you're failing. You just give up, man, just give up. Okay, it's not gonna work. You must decide who Jesus is. You don't get out of that. No matter what belief you hold to, Jesus Christ is the most influential figure and you have to say, is this guy a madman? Is he crazy? Or is he the way, the truth, and the life? The good news is, is when Jesus chooses his disciples, he chooses Thomas, a skeptic. He chooses some tax collectors. He chooses some fishermen. In other words, Jesus invites into his inner circle types of people that are represented in this room. Some of you are very skeptical. I'm a very skeptical person. I've shared that in the past. I doubt everything. You tell me something that's like, this has been proven again. I'm like, whatever, it hasn't been proven. You give me a conspiracy theory, at first I go, that's so dumb. I go, but wait a second. What if everything else was dumb and the conspiracy theory was right? And then I waste 15 hours <laughs> studying it to go, oh, this is nonsense. I'm skeptical about everything. Jesus invites the skeptic. He invites the tax collector. He invites the fisherman. And as he invited them to be his disciples, he worked with them for a few years. He didn't tell them on day one, you got to believe exactly right or get out. But sooner or later, everyone has to decide who Jesus is. And it might be time for some of you today to finally bow the knee to the one true king of heaven and earth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through him. That statement is either true or Jesus is a nutcase. So who do you say that he is? Maybe today's the first day you say, I'm I'm bowing the knee to King Jesus. For the church as a whole, Jesus says this in the same chapter, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This first part, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, so first off, that should be pretty scary. Because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you claim to love Jesus. And Jesus says, if you love me, you could keep my commandments. The Gospels and the first followers of Jesus immediately had stuff to say about this. They go, okay, Jesus says this and we believe it, but you need to know no one's perfect. And so when you sin, you confess sins. The Lord's Prayer has a part where we confess sins. We're supposed to confess sins to each other. So there's an assumption that no one's going to keep his commandments, all of them, all of the time. However, the idea is this, that if you love God, you will strive to obey his law. You're not going to do it all the time. You're going to mess up. Most of you didn't even make it to church before you messed up. You know, like me, just sinning. And it's like, you're grumpy. It's too early. This is second service, so you're a little bit more chippery. <laughs> but Christians strive to keep his commands. And he says that he gives us his spirit to empower us to keep his commands. So no one's perfect, but if you love Jesus, you want to obey him. The Gospel of Matthew closes with a command. What does the Gospel of Matthew close with? What's the command of King Jesus? Go therefore, preach the Gospel to everybody. Preach to everyone, baptize everybody, and teach everyone to obey the law of the Lord. You're supposed to do that. And so my challenge for the church as a whole is this. If we say we love God, then we will be about evangelism. We will be about telling others about our Lord Jesus. And I say this because, um, especially in American church culture, uh, we're so afraid of evangelism. We don't do it well, we're afraid, we're, you know, we're, well, I, I'm not good at it, what if I don't have answers? Uh, what if people think I'm crazy? And it's like, no, you know what? Forget all that, you are a little bit crazy, but that's not the Jesus part. You know what I mean? Jesus is making you more stable as an individual. And then there's some of you, you have this testimony as well. Someone shared the gospel with you. They didn't have the answers. They didn't even make that much sense. But something happened when someone proclaimed Jesus to you. You know what I mean? There's some of you who have the gift of evangelism. I've seen it where you just walk up to someone and it's kind of awkward. You're at a grocery store. It's like, hey, can We've got some groceries there. Can I buy those groceries for you? Oh, the Lord just put it on my heart to, to share, you, share with you that he loves you and that uh, he will return one, one day again to judge the righteous and the wicked. And then the person starts like bawling in tears receiving Jesus. I've seen this. Like, some of you are gonna be better at evangelism than others. Some of you have it as a gift. All of us are called to look at the people God has put in our life and say, God, how can I minister to these people? They need Jesus. If you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then you believe that person is in desperate need of Jesus. So what I'd like to do as we close is just give you like 30 seconds right now. Think who in your life needs Jesus? Who in your life needs Jesus? Who is it? Like name them in your head and, and as, as the, we're gonna close in, in worship in a moment, we're gonna take communion in a moment. 
Give those people to God and ask for wisdom right now. How can I share the good news of your son with this person? Because I'm certain the vast majority of this room has people in their lives that God has put there for a reason. Who are they? They need the love of God. Do you see what's happening as we've lost God? We're becoming miserable. We don't have meaning or purpose or truth or life. This is just in the last two decades. If we keep going down this trajectory in 10 years, can you imagine the human anguish that will exist in our culture? It'll be unbearable. And the kids will be the ones paying the full price of it. So the answer is the gospel. The answer is our people opening up to Jesus. So who is it in your head right now? The ushers can pass out communion. Who is it in your head? Give them to God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. An encouragement to his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. And he said, I'm gonna go away for a bit, but I go to prepare a room for you. And this room is being prepared in my father's house. And even though I've gone away for a bit, make no mistake about it, I will return, and then I will take you unto myself. In this room, there are people who haven't been married. There are people who have been married, divorced. There's people who have been cheated on. There's people who have cheated on their spouse. There's people who have been widowed. And so I don't pretend that all of our marital experiences are all great, nice, and dandy. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. If you are in Christ, you are his bride. He is the faithful husband. He will not leave you nor forsake you. No matter who's hurt you or harmed you, he will not do the same. He has left us but for a little while, and he will return with a shout, and there will be a celebration as the king of kings, your husband, takes you to the Father's house. And in the Father's house, there are many rooms. Christ has personally prepared those for you. Let's stand as we take communion. Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Lord, remember what you did on our behalf as the faithful husband. You are the way, the truth, and the life. When the betrothed bride or the soon-to-be betrothed bride was given the choice of whether or not she would marry the man who's putting down the, the silver and talking with dad, if she said yes, she and the groom would drink a glass of wine together. 
It was the bride's way of saying, I do. So Lord, you say to drink this, and as you do this, you are promising to declare declare the death and resurrection until Jesus returns. And so Lord, we do. Father, in this closing time of worship, may your son be glorified, the faithful one, the true one, true God, true human. I pray for anyone in here who's on the fence, that your spirit would convict them and they would come to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. I also pray for this church as a whole that we would be about evangelism, that we would be about telling others the good news of your son. And as we close in song, may we give you the honor and worship and praise that you are deserving of.